Hi, I'm Katie Spellman, and you are listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 125 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molly, your host. This week, I speak to Katie Spellman. Katie is a PR consultant and works for two of the women's greats, Simona Halep and Petra Kvitova. Katie tells us exactly what a PR consultant is and does, how she got into it and into the tennis world, her experience working with Grand Slam champions, as well as what goes on behind the scenes come Championship Sunday. I really love this side of the tennis world and found Katie extremely interesting. You're going to enjoy it. Before we get started, a shout out to our podcast sponsor, Slinger, who make the awesome portable ball machine, the Slinger Bag. They also help support this great podcast, so thank you, Slinger. Head over to slingerbag.com to get all the info on the bag. If you have any specific questions you'd like answered, feel free to reach out to me as I use one all the time. Okay, here's Katie. Hi, Katie. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Fantastic to have you on. We've never had a PR consultant on. Most people probably won't even know what a PR consultant does. So maybe kick off and tell us what does a PR consultant do? Definitely. Well, so my background is in journalism and communications. And what I bring to the PR consultancy role for my tennis players is I am the bridge between them and the media and sometimes the bridge between them and their social media. So whenever a journalist wants to get in touch with one of my players to speak to them, I facilitate that. I also do promotional activities. And now a big part of my role is social media and posting on behalf of the players when it comes to sponsors sometimes, obviously in conjunction with the player. But yes, basically any FaceTime with journalists and the greater public, I play a role in it somewhere. Wow. And how do you work with agents? So I see a bit of a same role from what I know of agents. Maybe I'm totally wrong here. Yeah, I'm definitely much more focused on the media and PR side than an agent would be. An agent wouldn't necessarily have um, media and PR in their experience or their qualifications. So I'm very much a specialist in that area. So I do work closely with the agents, but they're more focused on the financial side of a player's deals. So I would come in, say we're negotiating a new contract for a player and there is a PR piece to that contract and a social media piece of that contract. I would come in and, you know, advise on that side of it and then help with the actual interview process and social media process. So an agent is, more, as I say, more focused on the deal side. Sometimes, sometimes they do everything. But when it comes to a top player, and it tends to only be the top players in tennis who really add a PR manager to their team, I'm able to focus much more on that side because it's incredibly time consuming for someone who does have a lot of sponsorships and who is, you know, very much in demand from the media. I only imagine it. So is the best people to go through when I'm looking for guests is to go through PR consultants, not the agents? Because I was a journalist, I like to think that I'm incredibly helpful to the journalist because I know, I understand what they're asking for and why, and I understand what they want their end result to be. So I try to be a PR manager who says yes as much as possible. I do feel sometimes if there's not that understanding, then there's a very easy tendency to say no. So yes, I would say... <laughs> If you want to get an interview with a player, then a PR manager is, is your best bet. 
do you say there's only the top players really have a PR consultant on the team? So how many of you are there out in the world? Like, is there many independent PR people in the tennis world? Yeah, it varies. So some of the bigger agencies have PR people with it in-house. I would say probably only the top 10, top 20 players might have an individual who's doing PR and social media for them. Actually, increasingly because of the social media demands, there are more people helping players with that side of it. But, you know, it's obviously, it's an additional person on a team. It's an additional cost. So yeah, there aren't too many of us around. And I would say the people who are around are kind of very specialized in the media or tennis world. Okay. And I'm not sure, do you still work with Petra? Petra and Simona, yes. Are they pro social media or do you have to tell them to post or are they like, love it? So it's an interesting mix, I would say. They both very much are involved in their social media. But a big part of what's happening now in tennis, as I say, with partnerships, is that there are a number of sponsored posts that are required of the players in contracts. And that's not part that is necessarily technically even very easy for the player because there might be big video files that have to be downloaded and passed around before they can be posted. And then there's obviously a copy element and there's the tagging and the hashtags. And it actually can be quite a headache, a lot of moving pieces and timing. So I'm very much... Um, of the opinion that social media should be in their voice. And when it's about tennis and it's about something that's happened to them and emotions, it is very much in their voice. And then I try to kind of keep their voice when it comes to those sponsorship posts and make them authentic and, um, you know, very much in, yeah, in keeping with, with what my player, how my players want to project themselves on social media. But yeah, as I say, that's a very time consuming new part of their professional life. They were already incredibly busy and now there's this whole other element to their life that is required of them. It's another lucrative area of their life. You know, I, I think it's part of the deal. I know they have to, to do it, but I know what it's like downloading big files and maybe just, I know there's probably better Wi-Fi's when they play, but it's inconvenient. It can take an hour to do a post like by the time, you know, even if you're stuff prepared and then you forget to tag somebody. Yeah. What happens when you don't tag Rolex? How pissed are they? <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. And which is why you kind of need a professional to do those kind of things because they're so important and they're vital. If the contract isn't fulfilled, then we're, we're letting people down. So it needs, it does need to be taken seriously. You ask whether they kind of have a natural affinity for it. And I think, I think it's more a case of me helping them be able to spend that time focusing on tennis and not having to kind of fiddle around on their phone or their laptop trying to figure these things out. You know, my job is to allow them to focus on tennis um, and to take those extra demands away from them and allow them to focus on what's important. Tell me, Simona, how many DMs does she get a day? Is it in the thousands? Yeah, it's crazy. And and mostly it's really positive. But obviously, you know, there are occasions where if they lose a match that they may have been expected to win, it can be a, a pretty uh, brutal place to spend time. Unfortunately, mostly betters who are losing money. But no, there's, I mean, the interactions are huge for both of them, but particularly Simona on Instagram has a, a very engaged community. Um, obviously, she's a huge, huge personality in Romania. So yeah, pretty much... Um, Anything she posts, there's, there's, there's a lot of fun behind the scenes. 
I can imagine. And what's it like then? Obviously, you were with both girls when they won slam, multiple slams. Go through a week like that where, you know, it turns into a month for you, minimum between before and the after. What sort of preparation are you doing beforehand? What's going on during and then when it comes to the Wimbledon Gala Ball and after? How is that? Yeah. Well, the key part of the way I work with both players, because obviously both have been top players for a long time and are incredibly dedicated professionals, they always want to get their media out of the way before a tournament. They, as soon as the tournament starts, they want to be able to focus on tennis and they're ruthless about it. And that's one of the things I absolutely love about them is I know exactly where I stand, exactly when I need to do my job and then when I need to stand back and let them, let them focus on tennis. So before, let's say, let's use Wimbledon. Before Wimbledon, we would have arranged some longer term preview pieces with, you know, more considered magazines or bigger newspaper pieces who are bringing out supplements ahead of Wimbledon. We would have planned those ahead of time, you know, months ahead of time. And then obviously, as you get closer to the grass court season, there'll be like more specific one-on-one interviews with British newspapers who are obviously covering Wimbledon in a huge, huge way and still have lots and lots of pages dedicated to Wimbledon. And then actually, when you get on site at Wimbledon, you have a preview media day, which is when you do your big press conference and then some broadcast one-on-ones and then maybe some a couple more print one-on-ones, which is either on the Saturday or Sunday, depending, for Wimbledon. So that's quite a lot of work that's already gone in. And then by the time Monday comes around, they're able to play their match. And then all of their media is done post-match on the day of the match. And they'll have... Wimbledon is probably one of the busiest in terms of demands for post-match. They'll have a whole list of demands that come through, which I'm eventually shown on my phone because it's all computerized now. And we'll literally kind of go through and prioritize, obviously, host broadcaster as a priority. So by demands, just jumping in here, do you mean from broadcasters, from journalists? Yeah, radio, radio, TV, print, and now obviously bloggers and, and kind of they prioritize, obviously, TV, radio, print, and then kind of other requests come in. And there is an official, the, the great thing about being on site as a grand slam is that there is an official way to filter all of those requests. They all go through the club. And so I will, you know, see what all of those requests are and hopefully after a win, um, do, do as many of them as possible, but filter out the ones that maybe don't make so much sense and answer so much of a priority. And then, um, obviously get the player approval after the match set a time, which is usually about an hour to an hour and a half after the match. And then they come in and they start with their press conference. And then I take them through all of their, all of their media duties. And then they're free to go get physio and eat and, you know, carry on with their day. So that's kind of, once they're into the tournament, that's the rhythm. They don't do any media on their day off in between matches, if at all possible. And then if they're progressing well in the tournament, the demands might increase again. Say, for example, when Petra reached the semi-final for the first time, no one knew who she was. So the BBC were like, could we please have an interview with her? Because we would love to know a little bit more about her and who she is and where she's come from. Um, so that, yeah, they might pick up again as the interest. Suddenly you go from just being a player in the tournament to being a semi-finalist in the tournament. And so people want to know a lot more about you. And you'll see, you know... Certainly in the, with the finalists of a Grand Slam, they'll do a media day pre the final where they might have their flag around them. And there's the, you know, the famous photos of them 
before playing the finals. So, so the rhythm picks up again at the end. And then <laughs> if they win the Grand Slam, I mean, it's an incredibly euphoric moment and you focus on, you know, getting them off the court and, and doing the champions photos and all the wonderful things, meet, meeting, you know, the Royals, um, all the wonderful things that happen behind the scenes at Wimbledon, having champagne in the dressing room. Um, but then you have a ton of work to do because your phone's going crazy. Everybody wants to speak to them and it's not just the media on site, but then it's the TV shows and, and all sorts of things to prepare for with the ball. And so it's literally just a case, again, of letting them enjoy their moment, but at the same time, letting them understand that it's, it's a really big moment that they kind of need to, to make the most of. Yeah. I mean, I could carry on for, for hours, but hopefully that's a summary of it. It's just crazy. I mean, and how long does the craziness last after a slam? Like, when does it begin to fizzle out? A couple of weeks? Yeah. I think the really nice thing about Wimbledon is that for the women, they play the final on the Saturday and then the ball is on the Sunday evening. And this is what I'm talking pre-COVID. Obviously, everything's been a bit different in the last couple of years. But um, because the ball's on the Sunday, they have a bit of time to take it in. They have all day on Sunday that, yes, they'll do some media and they'll obviously get their hair and makeup done and, and get a dress. But they do have that bit of time for it to sink in before the ball, which I think is really nice because the men's finalist obviously comes straight there and doesn't kind of have time to stop. And then there will be, in both of Petra and Simona's cases, obviously they're, they're huge personalities in their own countries. So there's been huge homecomings when they've gone back to the Czech Republic and back to Romania. Simona was in the football stadium, hundreds of thousands of fans welcoming her, you know, to huge applause. So um, they get to go home and enjoy that adoration for a bit and kind of see the, the impact that it's had in their small countries. And... Do you fly back to the country or do you fly home? Yeah, I actually wasn't able to be in Romania with Simona, unfortunately. She does have a wonderful team of people there with her. So I wasn't there for that. Unfortunately, I feel sad that I missed out on that. But yeah, I have a, three young kids that I had to get back to after that Wimbledon. Has COVID been good for you in terms of family life at home or has it made the job really difficult? Yeah, so I have not been traveling. I was going to say at all. I've traveled a little bit, but no way near as much mainly because, you know, we weren't able to travel. And then also because they've hugely cut back on the number of people that players can even have on site. Often it was just one person. So obviously that would be their coach. So there really haven't been entourages that, have, you know, traditionally players have built up. They haven't been on site because they haven't been able to have access. And it's been so complex to not only fly, but then to quarantine and then different rules in different countries. Like the tennis world has, has definitely shrunk in the last couple of years. And I think we will see it return to normal. And obviously the vaccinations will help with that. But, you know, even looking at what's happening in Europe now, like it's kind of terrifying to see the numbers going straight back up again. I think we may well be in situations where, as they're doing in Australia, there is an insistence on, on everyone being vaccinated. And that hopefully will allow us to increase the numbers again of, of people traveling. But yeah, it's been much easier for me not to travel. I've also had to homeschool three, three children. So yeah, to travel on top of that would have been nigh on impossible. I can only imagine. I say, speaking of Australia, hopefully your players are vaccinated. I'm sure that can be a PR nightmare. I'm sure for Novak, we don't know his status, but it gives pressure. Every interview it comes up and I'm sure that's tough if you're his PR consultant dealing with that. Definitely. I mean, I... 
am one who has always learned or been taught that it's very important to be out in front of the narrative and to be as transparent as possible. And Simona, I believe, was one of the first players to be vaccinated and pictures of her being vaccinated were in all the papers in Romania. So she was incredibly proud, honored to be offered the vaccine. She was one of the first people to be offered the vaccine, grateful. So that, you know, we owned that. And the same with Petra. She got offered it while she was in the States at a tournament. The WTA have been incredible offering the vaccine to the players on site. They haven't had to travel anywhere. It's literally been something that they can do while they're at a tournament. I know I worked at the National Bank Open in Toronto with the men this summer. Same thing. We had a vaccine clinic on site, made it so easy for the players. So they have had access to it. And yeah, I think if they're vaccinated, it's a great example to set to their fans and followers. So why not be open about it? It's important. And that's, look, they're superstars, these guys, and they're entertainers. And they have a lot of followers, as you said, Simone is so big in Romania and same with Petra that they have a lot of people who look up to them. So it is important. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever. Get the new Cord FF3 Novak or Gel Resolution 9 at ASICS.com. ASICS Tennis have also just launched their new Cord FF3 Novak, the only tennis shoe designed with Novak Djokovic input. To learn more about ASICS, visit their website www.asics.com. But I know we don't get too topical or current topical on the Function Tennis Podcast, but it is the whole Peng Shui. You're going to correct me on the... Peng Shui. How would it be dealing with that situation? That would be, an, it's a nightmare situation where I know currently as of right now, she had a meeting with the Olympic president, was it? And it was only an image went out. So... Who knows what the truth is? Yeah. Well, first of all, on that, I want to say that I think the WTA have done an incredible job on the PR front and on the communications front. Their statements have been clear and strong, and they've left no doubt as to how strongly they feel that they would like to understand that Peng Shui is safe and well, and that there is an investigation happening into the, the alleged sexual misconduct of this Chinese political figure. I think it's still incredibly worrying that although we have seen Peng Shui in this interview with the IOC, the WTA has yet, uh, and I checked Twitter before, before I came on to chat to you, they have yet to hear from her, which is incredibly worrying considering the lengths that Steve Simon has gone to to try and ensure she's safe. I just don't understand why that conversation hasn't been able to, to take place. But I think, yeah, as I say, WTA have done a great job. My players have been in a huge amount of demand from CNN and BBC and all of the huge international news outlets wanting their opinion on it. It's something that they have both publicly, obviously, pledged their support to their fellow player and, and, and made it clear that the tennis family is, is all incredibly worried about Peng Shui and just want her to be okay. But further than that, you know, it's, it's difficult for them to, without a full understanding of exactly what is happening behind the scenes. Um, it's, it's difficult for them to kind of really help contribute to the conversation much further. But it's been, I think it's been really nice to see the men have come out in support of her. It hasn't just been the WTA, it's been the ATP as well. 
The Grand Slams have all come out. You know, I feel like the tennis community has done as much as they can PR-wise to support her. And who knows whether we're going to get anywhere with China and, and you know, witness any progress in, in any kind of investigation. Hopefully we get positive news by the time this comes out next week. So we'll be seven days away. But you look after the Aussie Open? No, I work on their social media team, PR and social media team. So yeah, it was an interesting one when the Australian Open happened a year ago now, which seems such a long time ago that all the players were in their hotel rooms hitting the balls against the mattresses and coming up with all sorts of weird and wonderful ways to spend their time while they're in that room. Yeah, I was working closely with the PR team from Canada, keeping an eye on on all of what the players were saying, what the media were saying, and obviously trying to promote as positive messaging as was possible in those incredibly difficult circumstances when the 72 players had to go into hard quarantine. I mean, the Australian Open did everything they could to get the players there safely. And then obviously with the COVID cases on the flight, which just changed everything in an instant and made it an unforgettable build up to a Grand Slam. Yeah. Hopefully this year will be more straightforward with the mandated vaccines. Hopefully. And is there ever any conflict of interest between you doing your job for a tournament and you doing your job for a player where tournament wants player, player you don't think, is there ever? Yeah, good question. Usually when I work National Bank Open, for example, I'm working with the men. So I don't do too much of working at a tournament the way players are actually playing out. There are so many conflicts of interest in tennis, and I'd like to think that I stay on the good side of it and don't ever encounter a situation where uh, um, I'm going to need something for two different parties. But I had, I did, I was the media director at the Connecticut Open for a couple of years, which Petra obviously has played and won many, many times. Um, and I was media director when Petra was there one year. But I feel like Tennis is such a small world that often something that's good for a player is also good for the tournament. So I feel like I've hopefully been able to marry the two and complement them. And there's never been a situation where, you know, Petra hasn't wanted to do something to help the tournament. I feel like when a player understands their obligations, and this is a really interesting conversation right now, especially with the the conversation around mental health and the media. I very much teach my players from the beginning when they're, you know, still up and coming that the media is a really important part of their life and that it can be a really positive part of their life and actually even an enjoyable part of their life. So both, both of my players understand that. And so when it comes to, you know, being asked to take part in promotional activities for the WTA or the tournaments or the sponsors, you know, they, they're pretty agreeable to doing that. So coming back to conflicts of interest, hopefully, I've, I, I don't feel like I've ever been in a position where I haven't been able to help my clients. There's advantages to both sides there. But the couple of players you work with, well, the great players you work with, you mentioned rootless is a characteristic of them. Is there any other characteristics that really stand out that you think help them be special? Do you mean in terms of their tennis? Just every day, their mentality off the court, anything you see that you wouldn't see from watching Wimbledon on BBC. I'll talk about Petra first and then Simona. They're very different, similar in many ways. Both fantastic human beings with their feet on the ground from great families, which I think is the most important foundation in tennis because it's an individual sport. You can be separated from your family. And unless you have that fantastic grounding, it can be a very 
difficult world to navigate and you can have different people trying to influence you and tell you things and you need that solid foundation, which both of them have. I think for Petra first, the thing that impresses me most about her is how calm she is able to stay, not just on the court, but off the court too. She's very good at not letting things affect her. She doesn't waste time on the emotional side of things. She's able to shut things out in order to stay focused on whatever it is she's trying to achieve. And I think she would say she gets that calmness from her mum. She she always credits her mum for the way she's able to do that. So I think that's probably the most impressive thing about Petra. Also, just incredible resilience. Obviously, the attack that happened in December 2016 is, is something that no human would wish to go through. But she approached that whole situation with such courage and determination not to let it, again, not to let it put her off course. She's very good at staying on course and finding a way to stay on course. So yeah, I would say resilience as well is, is a really big one for Petra. Simona, when I joined her team, she had just won Roland Garros. And Darren Cahill was obviously her coach at the time. You know, we all have those amazing images of those two embracing in the stands. And obviously that's a a partnership that I had so much respect for. And then when I joined the team, my respect just got even deeper because the way Darren ran the team was like almost like a, I would imagine a, a Formula One racing team to I would imagine that they perform in in a similar way. Darren created a mission statement for Simona's team. And it wasn't just about Simona. It was about what every person in the team could bring to that mission statement and contribute to the team goal. And so I hadn't ever been asked. I had to write a a one-page document of what I wanted to bring to the team, how I felt I could help, what I could contribute, and how that would help Simona. To be asked to do that was brilliant because I hadn't been challenged in that way before. And I loved it because I should be challenged in that way. And I should, if I'm working with one of the best players in the world, I, you know, I should be able to see how I can contribute to that player. So that was a whole new mindset. And I just felt like I was stepping up a whole level in terms of, of how I was going to work with Simo. And, you know, it was her physio, her her fitness coach, Darren, Virginia, her agent, we all had to contribute in the same way. And I loved the fact that we all felt like we were working towards her mission statement. If somebody doesn't want to be there, something like that can really make them visible and they won't last long by the sounds of it. Just to share the same goal and to know that you're all heading in the same direction and that you're all there for each other and you all play an important role. From what I see, it's great for you to be part of these teams and they help you grow as well. So it's not only about them growing, it's about you growing as well. And the more you grow, the more you can help them. It works both ways. 100%. Yeah, no, I I feel incredibly privileged to work with two such amazing women every day. And yeah, I learn a bunch from them every single day. Yeah, it's great. So Katie, I know you on your Instagram account do uh, my best five. You interview all sorts of people in the, not only the tennis world, outside the tennis world from what I, am I wrong? Yeah, no, you're not wrong. I just haven't, <laughs> I haven't been doing it in the last few months. I have to tell you when they, in Canada, we had a terrible second wave of COVID and they shut the schools indefinitely. And when that happened, <laughs> I literally had a two-year-old, a five-year-old and an eight-year-old at home and I had to homeschool them while still trying to work, while, you know, trying to keep the household together. So at that point, unfortunately, best of five fell by the wayside. 
and it hasn't yet been resurrected. But <laughs> it was really important to me during the pandemic to try and shine a light on career pathways into tennis, particularly focused on women, but focused on anybody who wanted to get a foot in the door in tennis. You saw that, you know, obviously there was huge unemployment when, when COVID hit. And it was actually the stories of the younger people coming out of university, not knowing where to look or how to even go about finding a job during COVID that I was particularly struck by. So I always want in a challenging situation, I always try to focus on the positive and try to find something to help people. And um, I felt like if I could interview some of the people in tennis about how they got into tennis and how they got their break and, you know, their experiences, that that would hopefully be something that people would enjoy and at least would would give them something nice to talk about <laughs> rather than the situation we were all going through. Tell us very quickly before we, we hang up the phone here, how did you get into tennis or what was your break into tennis? Yeah. So I played um, a lot of tennis as a kid. Uh, tennis is my favorite sport. I played college tennis at the University of Hawaii for a year before I went back to the University of Bristol. I ended up getting my degree in modern languages, French and Italian. And then I did a postgraduate diploma in journalism at the London School of Journalism. And I wanted to write about sport. I knew I wanted to work in sport. I didn't know in exactly what capacity, but I knew that I loved people and conversations. And so journalism, I loved writing too. So journalism was kind of an obvious route. So I started at the Sunday Mirror. I then went to the Times. I was um, probably the youngest woman on the sports desk. And I got to write about tennis and then football. And I became the deputy football editor at the Times um, at quite a young age. So it was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty interesting time to be a woman in sport. Women's sport still wasn't really covered at that point, but obviously we've made huge, huge strides since then. And I had just edited the Wimbledon supplement for the Times and had a meeting with the WTA. And they basically said, would you be interested in a communications role here? And I, I just saw it as an opportunity to marry all of the skills I had, particularly with the languages, um, also my passion for tennis, my writing, my understanding of how journalists think and what they're trying to achieve. And I felt like I would be able to help educate players on dealing with the media and help to bridge that gap. I felt like I would be on the journalist side almost in that communications role because I would want them to get access. I always understood how important access was, but I would also be able to help the player understand why they were giving interviews and why it was important for them and how it could help them. So yeah, I said yes to that role. <laughs> and it was, you know, traveling 150 days a year, working with the top players in the world at the time. It was Serena, Venus, Maria. Um, it was an incredible time to be at the WTA. I absolutely loved it. I love the people in tennis. Um, many of them still, still in tennis, but eventually it got to the point where I, you know, was of an age where we wanted to start a family. We moved to Canada. I couldn't really travel as much when I was living in Canada because I was part of the London office. So, um, I decided to try working for myself and I was very close with Petra. She had just won Wimbledon and she was my first client. And I, yeah, I took a, took a leap of faith and. Here I am, nearly 10 years later, I think. <laughs> That's great. And David Law from the Tennis Podcast, did he have a similar role on the ATP Tour or the Champions Tour, was it? Yes, yeah. And I think I even did work experience with him when I was still a student. I may have been a journalism student at the time at the Albert Hall. I did work experience working for him there. Yeah, I remember meeting him. Yeah. 
that was just as Federer was coming onto the scene a long time ago now. <laughs> wow, that's that's amazing. And do your kids play tennis? They do. My, uh, my eight-year-old and my six-year-old do a little bit. You know what? I haven't pushed it on them. I feel like I'm fully aware of how tennis parents can be and how intense and grueling life as a tennis player is. So I've given them the opportunity to play if they want. But honestly, at the moment, they play every sport. They Here, we live in Canada. They play hockey. They play soccer. They play flag football, gymnastics. I, I, I'm giving them the opportunity to try everything. If tennis sticks, fantastic. But it's definitely not something that I'm going to push them towards. We had Dylan Moscovich and Sharon Fickman on the podcast a while ago. I'm not sure if you know them. They're Canadians. Yeah. And Dylan was a was an ice skater for Canada and Sharon's back playing tennis. So it's a good mix there. But finally, you'd be able to tell the kids when the day comes or into tennis, at least you can make a good phone call and say, hey, hey, Simone, I need some help here. Yeah, exactly. They, My kids have grown up around tennis tournaments. Jack was four months old when he came to Wimbledon. And I remember having to feed him in the bathroom during one of Petra's matches. <laughs> uh, so my kids are not impressed, <laughs> unfortunately, by tennis that much because they're very lucky. They've been around it a lot. But I feel like as they get older and they get a better understanding of, of who these players are and how much they've achieved, that hopefully be very encouraging and inspiring to them. I'm probably more appreciated. Yeah. Katie, thank you very much. That was a lovely chat. Great hearing about what you do and hope to see you somewhere in the future when traveling's back to normal. God knows when. Yeah, definitely. Fingers crossed. It would be good to get back on the road. Really hope you enjoyed that episode. So much goes on behind the scenes of the top players and it's great to look at it from another angle. Until next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.